You know, people often <clears throat> ask us if, uh, when we get up here, before we give a sermon, if we get nervous. And I don't know about you guys, but the night before, I actually sleep like a baby. Uh, meaning, of course, that I wake up every two hours crying and needing to be comforted. <clears throat> that joke means way more to me now that I'm a father of a newborn for the first time. Uh, you may have heard just three weeks ago, uh, my wife gave birth to our baby girl, little Katora Ray Svensson. And, oh, thank you. <laughs> and uh, the name Katora is from the Bible, and it means a sweet offering to the Lord. And I always like when names have really nice meanings like that. My name, Lance, means to pierce, as in a boil. <laughs> so hers is better. <clears throat> if you follow me on any social media, uh, you've seen all the pictures I've posted of my daughter, and you see that I am just obsessed with her. Um, she just looks so peaceful and, and perfect now. But uh, it did not start out that way. She was born on December 7th at 3 in the morning. We, were, we went in the day before, and my wife was supposed to be induced the morning of the 6th. But after 17 hours of labor, they came in and said that they were going to have to do uh, an emergency C-section. Um, and the reason for that is because every time Teresa had a contraction, uh, Couture's heart rate would drop significantly. Uh, which they explained meant that there was a good chance that the cord was wrapped around her neck. And that's among the scariest things I have ever heard. So when Katora did finally come out, uh, I got to look at her right away, and I'm, I'm an emotional guy, and I immediately started tearing up. Um, as I waited for that moment, you know, where they, they come in, they, they give you the baby, and, and she's crying, and it's just like you always pictured in the, in the movies. Um, but instead of handing her to me, the doctors rushed Katora over to a side table. And they start talking very fast. Uh, and the worst part was there was no sound coming from Katora at all. <clears throat> and I got extremely nervous because I know that when babies come out, they don't look pink and, and perfect. Um, but Katora was this deep blue color. And the nurses started her. Mm. The nurses started her on oxygen and. Mm. And they had tubes going down her throat because her airways were blocked. And, um, and I know at that moment I had to hold it together because Teresa was on the operating table. The only thing that she could see was me. And then if she could see the way that I actually felt, she would know that something was really wrong. And I, kept, I just kept thinking, this can't be how the story ends. Uh, and then the nurses, they called me over to the table and they told me to, to start talking to Katora. And I think they did that more for my own comfort because I don't think that actually helped her at all. <laughs> I mean, I'm a pretty encouraging guy, but I don't think she was getting everything. <clears throat> and uh, at the angle that I was at, uh, the only thing that, could, that Teresa could see was Katora's arm if I, like, lifted it up. So I lifted up her little arm, and as soon as I let it go, it just dropped, almost lifeless. And that was a really scary moment. And they give newborns a score once they're born called the APGAR score, which I hadn't ever heard of. But it ranges from 1 to 10, and it checks to see if there's needed, if there's needed any like, emergency care. And the closer to 10, the better. And they announced that Katora was currently at a 2. Um, and they said they had to get her to the intensive care. So I was allowed to go with her, of course. But that meant that I had to leave Teresa. Uh, and at that point, Teresa hasn't even seen her face yet. So as soon as we got down to the uh, intensive care, which was now floors away from my wife, 
uh, they instructed me to sit in the corner just to be out of the way. And never have I felt more useless in my entire life than when they tell me to just get out of the way so they can start like poking and prodding at my child. And uh, the head doctor would come over and, exp <clears throat> and explain things in their very doctor, emotionalist way. And I would ask things. <laughs> yeah, you've met doctors. <clears throat> so I would ask things like, so besides the fact that she can't breathe on her own, she's going to be okay, right? And the doctor would keep saying things like, well, I don't want to make any predictions too early. <clears throat> I was like, I wouldn't mind if you lied to me in this moment. <clears throat> Um, and on top of that, I just got word that there was complications with Teresa's C-section, and she had lost too much blood, and now she was in the middle of getting blood transfusion. That's all the information they gave me. I just sat there alone. There was a constant stream of nurses and doctors coming in to, <clears throat> to check on Katora, on her vitals and oxygen levels, and and seeing if she could breathe on her own for three hours. And finally, after that time, after that three hours, Katora settled down enough that they decided to just let her, let her rest and see how she would do. And it was so nice because finally it was just... Finally it was just me and her and I could just cry. And looking at my daughter in this incubator... Uh, with IVs in her arms and tubes coming out of her, her mouth, I just felt so alone. Uh, and I kept talking to Katora through the incubator, and I held her little hand through the door. They have a little door on the side. I wasn't sure if, they, if you're even allowed to open it, but I did anyway. <laughs> <laughs> just so I could hold her hand. And uh, I had my Bible there, and because uh, I had this image of getting to read to Katora right away. And, um, and I knew at that moment I needed to be comforted. So I decided I was going to read to her from Proverbs. And since she was born on the 7th, I decided that I'd start reading uh, Proverbs 7 to her. And after I got to Proverbs 7, I quickly saw that that was about the adulterous woman, so that was no good. <laughs> so then I flipped over to Psalm 7, and that's all about... David praying to God to smite his enemies. <laughs> Not exactly the first words from the Bible I wanted my daughter to hear. So I started going through some verses that I just had memorized, some of my favorite verses, and some of the stuff that had been on my mind recently. And uh, one of the stories that kept coming up was about the, the three men in the fiery furnace, also not what I was expecting. But if you were here a few weeks ago, I did the children's sermon on that very story, and I shared about the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego. And I talked about the beautiful statue that King Nebuchadnezzar made everybody down to. I even brought an example of that beautiful statue, if you guys remember. Uh, it was really just a large cutout of me, <laughs> uh, just so everyone could get an example. Um, so the, the, the book of Daniel had been on my mind a lot for the last three weeks, and, and it was certainly on my mind when I was in the intensive care with Katora. And this, that story... It's all about those three men and, and their suffering through persecution for their faith. Um, but it's also about them knowing that they needed God in the most difficult time in their lives. And as I stood there with my daughter and looking at her in the incubator, I felt that I had a more understanding of my own need for God more than ever. So today I want to go back to that story, which was just read to us, 
Um, so that's Daniel chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, please open it. We're going to walk through it together. If you're the type of person that marks up their Bible, grab a pen. Um, not if it's one of ours. <clears throat> so in the Bible, you're not going to find a story more about faith than this story. You're also not going to find uh, people with more character than these three men. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their story was about who God wants them to be and not worrying about the culture around them. I typically don't even like stories like this in the Bible because in stories like this, you kind of by default compare yourself to the characters, and there's no way that we can measure up to these three. It's like with, with King David, I think about him and with all his faults. He did a lot of good stuff, but you think, yeah, but he was also a murderer. Then with Moses, he was a, a great man, but he was a bit of a complainer, and he barely ever listened to God on, on the first time. And you have people like Thomas, who was a doubter, Peter, denier, Judas, you know, that one turns out. But for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they take their faith to another level. They were unwavering, and they were countercultural. What they did was they didn't, they didn't go about seeing how far they could go into the world and then see when they could keep their faith. It was the opposite. They decided they were going to keep their faith as much as they could and only be in the world as much as they were forced into it. And that's not how we live today. And I don't think I'm alone when I say I probably spend too much time trying to fit in, to succeed in the world's eyes, the want of the big home, the nice cars, the great appearing family. And it's not always conscious, but I can notice myself drifting uh, to go after those things as much as in the world's eyes as I can, and then seeing where I can fit God in throughout the week. For many of us, many Christians, there's no noticeable difference between us and the person next to us with the way that we live. And sometimes I, I ask myself, if someone didn't know me, would they be able to tell that I was a Christian? Like, could they tell that I was a Christian by the way that I speak, by the way that I treat my family, by the way that I live? Like, where's my focus? Where does it tend to be? Is it, is it on how I can fit in to the culture around me? Or am I focused more on living the way that I know God wants me to live? In the case of these three men, them holding to their convictions it didn't just make people uncomfortable. It was actually against the law, against the law of a very, very powerful man, um, a man who thought very highly of himself, King Nebuchadnezzar. And um, what, so King Nebuchadnezzar, he was so angry that these three wouldn't bow down to this beautiful statue that he had, that he threatened them in verse 15. Halfway through verse 15, it says, If you do not worship... You shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar is trying to demonstrate how important he thought he was when he said, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? See, Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he's the end-all, be-all. And how dare these people think that he's not the most powerful? That he has power to kill these three right then if he wants to. And under, under normal circumstances, that would work, but not with these three, because these three know who holds the real power and are not afraid to let Nebuchadnezzar know it. In verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to, to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. The three here, 
they're only thinking of what's to come in the eternal sense. They know that there's a good chance that they're going to die. But they aren't living for now. And that's really the difference. If we're only thinking about the here and now, then what's important to us is material, is status, is our achievements. But when we're thinking of what's to come, it's the long run that matters. We aren't thinking about temporary things like the latest phone or clothes. That's odd to think about, but even cars and, and homes are temporary. And all of our material trinkets that matter so much to us now won't matter to us in eternity, let alone years from now. You've probably heard the, the saying, you never, you've never see a U-Haul behind a hearse, right? Because you can't take it with you. Pastor Chuck said that once. And when we're thinking of in the eternal sense, we even start to look at relationships differently. It's no longer uh, just about having fun on dates, um, but rather how can we honor each other because this could be my spouse one day. If it's not my spouse, it could be someone else's spouse one day. We even look at money differently. When we're worried about acquiring more, you hold on to money so tightly. You become stingy because it's yours and you work so hard. When you think about the long run, you tend to save more and you tend to give more. And I find the more I do both of those, the more relaxed I am. This life of ours, this life isn't the end of the race. If it was, then we'd have to do everything in our power to make sure that we got as far as we can by the world standards by the time we die. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are thinking past this life to what really matters, which is why they say they can so confidently stand in front of a king and say, we don't even need to answer to you. They know that they're probably going to die. And they know that they can get out of it. All they have to do to get out of it is bow down to this statue. Um, but they say instead that we know that our God is able to save us. Then in verse 18, they go on to say, But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. If you have your, your own Bible, circle this or underline it. It's one of the boldest things ever said in the Bible. And Nebuchadnezzar is not happy. It says that Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then they, these three were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's orders were so urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the men killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. <clears throat> For maybe the first time ever in King Nebuchadnezzar's life, he doesn't have control over someone, and he hates it. He even goes overboard. It says that he had the strongest men tie them up. And then he has the fire heated up seven times hotter than normal. It's another time in the Bible where God uses the rage of man to show just how powerful he really is. Because King Nebuchadnezzar's issue is that he's only thinking in the here and now. He's mad and he wants his way right now. He also thinks that he's in control. It's easy to say that we have faith when everything is going exactly our way. When you have the job you want, when everyone in your family has their health, when you have all the people around you that, that love you, 
that's not, going, that's not what's going on here. These three are facing death, and they say, we know our God is able to deliver us out of your hands. But even if not, we will not serve you or worship anything but our own God. And if I were to picture myself in this situation, I'd like to think that I could confidently stand in front of my accuser and say those same bold words, but I don't know. I'm not even sure if I have examples in my life to support that. And I know this won't happen in heaven, but I sometimes think when I get there that Jesus is going to show me two films of my life. One would show all the times where I did all the right things, where I just nailed it. And then there would be another film. And my fear is that that other film, of all the wrongs, things that I did, would be much longer. And watching that, all of a sudden, the things that I bragged about to my friends wouldn't be as cool. The jokes I told wouldn't be as funny. Those times where I chose to be comfortable as opposed to taking a stand wouldn't be nearly as relaxing. But I did it because I didn't want to be persecuted or even made fun of just a little bit. Some of us in our life, we'll, we'll avoid any kind of persecution for our beliefs because we won't ever bother taking a stand. Uh, so we'll never have to risk being uncomfortable because it's just easier to let someone blaspheme the name of God. Just easier to let someone take advantage of the less fortunate. But some of us do live noticeably different because we want to keep the rules that are outlined in the Bible. And because of it, we may feel awkward. We may lose friends. We may even be alone on Friday nights. But we're holding on to what's right in the eyes of God. And when we are different, when you have those moments, when we have genuine faith, people take notice. That's how this story ends also. So they're thrown into the furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar can't believe what he sees. Verse 25, he says, I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads were not singed, their clothes were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel to deliver his servant who trusted in him and set aside God's command and yielded up their own bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Nebuchadnezzar finally realized that these three were different because of their faith in the Lord. And people noticed genuine faith. I've received a bunch of messages on social media over the years where people ask me, why do you seem so happy? Why do you seem so relaxed and, and carefree? And I always tell them right away, it's because of my relationship with Jesus, and most people don't message back. Um, <laughs> but I got one message back that said, eh, you just have one of those personalities that would follow Jesus. And I thought about that for a long time and, and what that meant. Eventually, I, I um, I responded and said, you know, it's not that I have the personality that would have a relationship with Jesus. It's because of my relationship with Jesus that I have this personality, like that I seem carefree, that I am genuinely happy. And people, notice, people may have noticed that you are different as well, and they aren't sure why, or you may 
notice other people that they seem different and you're not exactly sure why. Because, you know, people get confused. They think that once, once you decide to follow God that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. That you won't be, there won't be any pain or any, any, any suffering. But you know what? That's not in here at all. It's not in the Bible. In fact, it says the exact opposite. It says that there will be times of trial and suffering. And there will be pain in our lifetime. But the difference is that when you're a Christian, it says that when you go through pain and suffering, that God is right there with you in it. He's in the trial with us. He's in the fire with us. Those dark times where you felt alone, that's your fear and anxiety just blinding you from the truth, that God is with you in those moments. Deuteronomy 31.6 says that God will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Psalms 23 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Jesus died on the cross and promised us that he is always with us in the good times and in the painful times. And you know, in that intensive care unit, that was a really lonely time. But knowing that Jesus was there along my side gave me a peace. Not even a peace that Couture was going to be all right, but a peace that even if not, that she was never going to be alone. It was five hours until Teresa was finally brought down to see our daughter. And because Teresa had lost so much blood and she had her, her transfusion. And then a total of 12 hours after Couture was born that she was finally able to breathe on her own and be released from the intensive care. And since the day that she was born, my prayers for Couture have changed. I used to pray that she would be kept safe her whole life. That's not really what I want anymore. I do want her to be kept from evil, of course, but I don't exactly want her to be safe all the time. In her life, for my daughter, I want her to be pushed. I want her to be challenged and grow and strengthen in her, in her faith. Because it's in those times of trials and, and suffering when we realize that we're not alone in any of it. So my prayers have changed for my child, too. God, let her live a life that is fully surrendered to you. And never allow her to ever go through any suffering, suffering without realizing that you are right there with her. And also to not let her date till she's 30. <laughs> Amen. Thanks, buddy.